Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin Podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com and check out the growing mix of arts and culture podcasts they have to offer. That's OsirisPod.com. Check it out. They have the goods. In this episode, I am thrilled to share with you an interview with Aaron Cohen, author of Move On Up, Chicago's Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. In Move On Up, Aaron tells the remarkable story of the explosion of soul music in Chicago. Together, soul music and black-owned businesses thrived, and record producers and songwriters broadcasted optimism for black America's future through their sophisticated jazz-inspired productions. Curtis Mayfield boldly sang of uplift with unmistakable grooves like We're a Winner and I Plan to Stay a Believer. Musicians like Phil Corin and the Pharaohs used their music to voice Afrocentric philosophies that challenged racism and segregation, while Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire and Shaka Khan created music that inspired black consciousness. Soul music also accompanied the rise of African-American advertisers and the campaign of Chicago's first black mayor, Harold Washington, in 1983. This empowerment was set in stark relief by the social unrest rolling in Chicago and across the nation. As Chicago's homegrown record labels produced rising stars singing songs of progress and freedom, Chicago's black middle class faced limited economic opportunities and deep-seated segregation. Drawing on more than 100 interviews and a music critic's passion for the unmistakable Chicago soul sound, Aaron shows us within Move On Up how soul music became the voice of inspiration and change for a city in turmoil. In this episode, Aaron and I discuss the countless interviews he took on to bring Move On Up to vivid life, the diversity of sound and influences that defines Chicago's soul music, the interconnectedness between music and politics highlighted in the book, the influence of the 1960s psychedelic counterculture on Chicago's soul music, the power radio wielded in engaging the community through music and community action, and so much more. Aaron is an absolute wealth of music knowledge, and his book was entirely enlightening, and I could not recommend it more. Grab a copy, and in the meantime, I know you will enjoy and learn a great deal from this interview with Aaron Cohen. I learned learned so much. So thank you uh, for coming on, talking about it. I'm, I'm excited about this. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy this podcast very much, and it's a great honor to be here. And I really am looking forward to speaking. Great, that's uh, that's super kind of you to say. So I need to know. This is um, it, it's quite the endeavor. Um, this 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 book is so thoroughly researched. It covers um, you know, uh, multiple decades, three decades or so of time, and so many artists, musicians. Uh, what did it take to um, put this thing together? There's obviously a whole lot of interviews and a whole lot more. Um, I'm, I'm just so curious about everything that went into this. Well, in terms of the actual work, um, the first interview I did for the well, the first interview I did that was in the book was in 1997, mm. and that was with the wonderful singer songwriter Terry Collier, and that was 
an interview I did with him for uh, Downbeat magazine. And that interview, the time I spent with Terry, got me thinking about this tradition in ways that I had not thought about it before. I grew up in Chicago. I grew up loving rhythm and blues, soul music, jazz, gospel from Chicago. And at that time, I started to rethink about all of these different ways in which soul music in particular had manifest itself in the city. So that was in the late 1990s. And then I went on to do other things. I went to graduate school. I started working as a magazine editor. That was at Downbeat as well. I wrote a book on Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album. And then I came, but all the while I was thinking in the back of my mind how I would formulate this kind of book, this kind of study about uh, soul music in Chicago, what it meant to me, the different angles to it. And So it was really in um, 2010 that I seriously started diving in to do more interviews. And some of these were interviews that I was thinking about for the book, but also for newspaper and magazine assignments. And then in 2010 was when I started to formulate an outline, formulate an idea. And in 2013 was when I signed uh, the contract with my publisher, the University of Chicago Press. And then I got to writing and rewriting and editing and interviewing and all the other research that I was doing in libraries and online and other sorts of uh, audio archives. And then uh, in 2019, um, it came out. So um, in some ways, it was a process that started in 1997 Mm -hmm. and resulted in the book in 2019. Other ways, it was 2010 to 2019 Mm -hmm. of thinking about it, 2013 to 2019, concentrating on it. So it was a multi-year process in different stages. It really, really shows. feels like a true labor of love of uh, music that's near and dear to the heart and a a city that's near and dear to your heart. Um, What really uh, struck me to to start talking about the music uh, right off is um, the diversity of sound um, kind of coming out of Chicago in this time period that... uh, on up focuses on i was wondering if you could speak on this the uh the diversity of this chicago sound it's um you know there's there's a whole lot of influences that were absolutely fascinating well yes that's one of the things that i wanted to stress in terms of the music uh is that there was no singular chicago sound but there was the Mm -hmm. many different sounds of chicago music makers i mentioned terry collier who drew on folk music, acoustic folk music. He drew on soul music. He drew on jazz. There were groups like Rotary Connection, which drew on Gregorian chants. They drew on what might be considered traditional rhythm and blues. They drew on rock. They drew on classical music. The Charles Stephanie who produced them had all of these amazing ideas. There were the people whose names uh, we know, like Curtis Mayfield, who was creating his own uh, kind of music. There were uh, harmony groups like the Dells. There were groups like the Shy Lights who sounded very different than, say, uh, Terry Collier. They sounded different than the Rotary Connection. There were the, um, a few years later, there were, you know, the funk groups like the Pharaohs that mutated in some ways into Earth, Wind, and Fire. So all of these different sounds. There was the um, more Afrocentric uh, influence sounds of people like Phil Caron. So it was really such a 
marvelous and it remains uh, such a marvelous mixture of so many different sources, so many different musical ideas that uh, even with all of those years I spent working on the book, there is just still so many that I could really uh, dive into because it's just incredible, the diversity and range of music. Yeah, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Something that really struck me too is um, just how much the uh, the culture and the music of the South um, – what really affected everything at that point. I, you know, I was kind of blown away by just kind of that migration you were speaking of. Um, I guess I didn't know enough about it, but, uh, you know, at one point there was 1.8% um, of the black community grew to 1.3, um, uh, you know, a third of the community of the size, you know, flowed from the South. I mean, that sort of growth, growth, it was 1.8 to a third percentage of the people in the city from, you know, when the book kind of, you know, up until the 1970s, the South had a major influence. Yes, and I have to give credit to the author Isabel Wilkerson mm. and her book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which is a incredible narrative about the black migration uh, from the South to cities like Chicago, including yeah. Chicago. And it was a huge uh, population demographic shift. And that interested me. But what also interested me was that a lot of the soul singers, rhythm and blues performers of the 60s and 70s were the children of that migration, or they migrated here as very young children themselves. And so along with this demographic, they were also at this time period seeking their own identities in many different ways and seeking their own identities through music also fascinated me a great deal. And that also because of this large population, there was an industry of small and large recording companies. Uh, there was the upstart radio stations. There was media uh, like the Chicago Defender and other growing media, African-American media, Ebony, Jet, which were based here in Chicago. So it was an incredible story that touched on all of these other social and cultural aspects alongside the music. Really, really fascinating stuff there. Um I want to ask kind of a song-specific uh, question. There's an important song that came up in the book. There was a, you know, you explained kind of how an entire community went into the birthing of the uh, the Impressions song for Your Precious Love, uh, a song um, described in the book as the first urban soul song. I'd love to hear you talk about what was so special about this song and how it came to be, because there was a lot of interesting facets there. Um, well, first of all, the... Uh first urban soul song term, I have to give credit to a wonderful novelist, Leon Forrest, who okay. is from Chicago, mm -hmm. and um, I spent time with him in the early 1990s. So a lot of my literary inflections, <laughs> such as they are, come from writers like Leon Forrest. So I have to give him a lot of credit mm -hmm. first. Yep. But to get back to the song, For Your Precious Love, well, that's why I wanted to start the book with that song, in addition mm -hmm. to being a wonderful song, oh, yeah. is because the process of creating the song was not just these young men who were in the impressions, as brilliant as uh, Jerry Butler, Curtis Mayfield, and the other impressions are, were and are. It's also this community. So they grew up in the Cabrini Green housing project, but they could also rehearse at the Seward Park Fieldhouse, which is still there. And perhaps I was projecting my, my own uh, fantasies when I would go to the Fieldhouse and, you know, pretend that I could hear the echoes that were still there. But it provided a community. It provided a community space. It provided a community theater, if you will, for them to hone their craft in a supportive environment because at that time, 
the community was uh, very supportive. They also were able to form connections with slightly older people like Eddie Thomas, their manager, who helped guide them at this stage and brought them to VJ Records where it was released. And VJ Records was a new African-American-owned record company. So what did that mean for the community? What did that mean for the song? That also interested me. And then the background of the impressions. Well, they you know, came from different churches. The uh, you know, Pentecostal church that uh, Jerry Butler and uh, Curtis Mayfield met. How is that reflected in the song? How is that reflected in the harmonies? The poetic tradition that uh, Jerry Butler was um, coming out of in terms of uh, the influence of poets like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who also influenced um, Curtis Mayfield's mm-hmm. writing. How, you know, coming up with these lyrics, coming up with this sound, uh, new recording studios like Universal, where they could have this empty space that is so crucial to making that song so effective because when we listen to it if we were to hear other instruments in there it would have probably ruined the effect but having it be so sparse and the focus on these voices in this space is so incredible so i wanted to find all of these different sources of the song that included of course the people who were there singing it and performing on it but also what led them to that spot at that particular time. Yeah, it's just, it is amazing to think about all the influences and all the people and just everything happening to come together to uh, to make something, a piece of art like that come to life. It's it's really, really uh, just fascinating to me. But what also is like kind of really important in um, kind of throughout the entirety of Move On Up is the interconnectedness of um, music and pol- uh, politics. Um, you know, in the intro, you shared that um, Jerry Butler quote, uh, most of what's done in the city is prompted by politics and most of black politics is supported by music. So uh, I'd love to hear you talk about how these two bolster each other in uh, in Chicago and anywhere, really. Well, Jerry Butler is a, uh, you know, he's a, he's a wonderful example because along with being such an accomplished uh, singer, songwriter and community organizer and entrepreneur he was also a politician Mm -hmm. he served on the cook county board and did a lot of great things on the political level as well so he exemplifies a very direct uh, musical and political connection but along with the diversity of music in chicago there was also especially among african-american activists in the 60s and 1970s very different approaches to politics to engaging in politics Mm -hmm. there was the electoral model that um, Jerry Butler followed. There was also um, the integrationist ideal of a group like Rotary Connection, who were not just integrated in terms of the sorts of music that they were drawing from, but also integrated in terms of their lineup, in terms of the background of the Mm. people involved. There were also the Afrocentric model of someone like Phil Caron, who ran the very Afrocentric Afro Art Theater on the South Side and really emphasized African culture. And he would have people like Stokely Carmichael and Fred Hampton speak at the Afro Art Theater. And people like Shaka Khan would follow leaders like Fred Hampton and Phil Karan. There was also the corporate model of Operation Push and the Push Expo. And there were musicians involved in that as well, which also reflected the corporate 
goals of people like Carl Davis, the African-American entrepreneur at Dark the Car Records, part of Brunswick, and his producing and promoting of groups like the Shy Lights and Lost Generation. There was the ideal of owning oneself and self-sufficiency mm-hmm. that Curtis Mayfield and Eddie Thomas um, personified with Kurt Tom Records. So there were many different avenues to achieve political, social advancement, movement, and title. And one of the great things about the Chicago musical community was that they were going in all of these different directions. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It was really interesting, you know, and you mentioned some more current, um, you know, Chicago musicians, uh, you know, towards the end of the book, but so much of what these artists that um, you just spoke of were doing kind of provided a, a roadmap to some, to some, um, you know, future, future stars, if you will, and how to, you know, protest, how to use the power of their music, um, you know, and how to change their situation. I mean, you know, you mentioned how, uh, you know, uh, certain musicians got into politics and then, you know, we see uh rhyme fest later on, um, you know, current days running for alderman and, you know, Butler, you mentioned him, he would, he kind of, you know, stood out to me as kind of like almost like an MVP of the book. I was absolutely blown about everything he was doing. But, I mean, I hear Killer Mike from Run the Jewels these days talk a lot about, um, you know, uh, black entrepreneurship. And, you know, but, I mean, Butler, um, he was taking his money out of white-owned banks and put it in black-owned banks back in the day. And so so much of what they did kind of provided a blueprint for the, for the future, um, you know, for the future generations. Oh, absolutely. And I wanted to concentrate on... Chicagoans of that time period, mm-hmm. and you know, and also their connections to today. And I had a wonderful uh, conversation with Rhinefest toward the end, and that's that's toward the end of the book. Yep, um, yep. But um, the thing about the Chicago, I wanted to concentrate on Chicago, and I couldn't say too much about how that compared to other cities mm. because I interviewed more than a hundred Chicagoans. That was all very. These interviews were primary source interview material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me to compare what was going on in Chicago in the 60s and 70s to Memphis and Detroit, I would have to compare my primary source material with secondary source material, mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. about those. Yeah. And it would not make for a fair uh, comparison. Um, for instance, when I wrote about the Chicago musicians uh, reaction to Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. In an early draft, I compared it to the musicians' uh, reaction to King's murder in Memphis mm-hmm. and how Memphis musicians reacted. And that did not seem right because I was basing it on um, Peter Guralnik's book, Sweet Soul Music, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, mm-hmm. but it's still a secondary source. Yeah. So I really wanted to keep the focus on the primary sources and concentrate on on that. So that was one of the things I wanted to really set out to do with the book was yeah. concentrate on Chicago because um, that was where, that's where I live yeah. and also that's where I've had the well, most I mean, access. That, I think that singular focus was, was, you know, it, there was so much that happened in that time period in Chicago and so many musicians who were, you know, really changing the game. And, and you know, th- I think that singular focus was smart. It was, it was, you had enough to chew on there uh, anyways. But, no, it's very funny because yeah. I was talking about the book before it came out uh-huh. with a um, a really great uh, jazz uh, saxophonist named uh, Darius Jones, and he's based in New York. And I was telling him, you know, about my book and what it was all about. And um, 
and you know regarding Chicago, and he he asked me, well, could this apply to um, other cities? And I said, Darius, it's taken me ten years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to concentrate on Chicago. If I was to be fair to other cities, it would take me what fifty years. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I mean, I was going to ask you at one point in the book, you um. You know, because the book spans from the 1950s to 1980s, and um, you mentioned later errors deserve uh, deserve separate books on your own. I mean, is that something you think about, or you know, how, how do you feel about? Is there a follow up in the works? Well, I mean, like I like I said in the introduction, um, you know, there there are rooms for other scholars, and mm. part of what I wanted to do was get the conversation ball rolling. Sure. That's why I mentioned that in the introduction to the book. Um, and since the book, you know, came, since I finished the book, there have been, um, you know, other books. There's a really great book on house music in Chicago that came out um, a couple of years ago by uh, Mika uh, Salkin. I think I'm pronouncing the first name mm-hmm. right. And it's called Do You Remember House? So there are, you know, other books and other aspects of Chicago music um, that I recommend people read. But I'm concentrating right now on teaching and, mm-hmm. you know, making myself as available to my students as possible so that's really my focus at yeah. this moment and plus i'm so exhausted from the experience of having you know written uh, this book so, and then the short one on yeah. amazing grace that came before mm-hmm. it so i'm taking a little rest i've been very active in telling my friends what books they should write <laughs> i've been very good about that right. but as far as myself and also too with um especially with move on up so much of it uh, derived from my knowing people personally going out meeting people getting to know people talking to people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i don't want to blame the pandemic for you know my lack of, <laughs> of uh, book efforts but it certainly but, has hindered my ability to go out and meet people for absolutely. sure which is what would contribute to a book you've uh, you've you've done enough here i can imagine the exhaustion there it's so you. so well researched and and just you can tell how much you got it and you mentioned house music it does touch on at points kind of the birthing of house that book sounds uh fascinating do you uh do you remember house is that what it's called it's called do you remember house it came out uh, i think shortly before my book did um but um yeah i had no idea that um it was being worked on but it's great um well that's another thing too was i wanted to have this 25 essentially a 25 year period Mm -hmm. uh so that's why i start in the late 1950s and i end in the early 1980s with a little tiny bit before a little tiny bit after but i really wanted to concentrate on the 25 year period You know, to start with the impressions uh, recording for Your Precious Love and then it ending with the election of Harold Washington as mayor and Jerry Butler beginning his political mm-hmm. um, life and then the rise of house music as well. And because it seemed like these eras were book, being bookended in yep. my book. Yep. And also ending with a really incredible quote uh, by Rhymefest, which I'm not going to say listeners can check that out when they read the book. Um, radio is surely an integral part of this story and um, just how, you know, it lended to black empowerment and, you know, it was a medium that was employed to engage the community through music and, and community action. I would love to hear your take on the power of radio in this time period and, you know, rego- regards to black cultural power. And, um, you know, also kind of curious if you feel, you know, that was just a moment in time or if that power still exists in any way. Well, the importance of WVON in Chicago in the 1960s, it can't be overstated. Mm -hmm. Uh, WVON, which stood for Voice of the Negro, and not only did it play so much of this music, it also, and of course not just by Chicagoans, but by 
uh, rhythm and blues and jazz performers uh, nationwide, but it also provided a platform for African Americans, especially young African Americans, to discuss issues that meant a lot to them. And this was at a time when so much of the so-called mainstream media in Chicago would consider these populations to be invisible. Mm-hmm. And you know, here was a station that was, you know, airtime, and it was, you know, not just music, but also engaging with civil rights issues and engaging with political changes that were going on. The DJs at WEON hosted um, record hops um, mm-hmm. so that, you know, teen, young African-American teens can get together and not just, you know, meet performers, but also show off their fashion sense. And again, this was a making of identity. It was showing one's identity, which is so crucial for affirmation of all kinds. And then there was also um, later on the rise of FM radio and WBMX, which stood for uh, Black Man's Experience. And so there was this whole, you know, new frequency FM and what this radio station meant as far as addressing uh, an upwardly mobile African-American audience in the 1970s. And then, of course, there was also the issue of white ownership and black ownership of stations and what that meant Mm -hmm. to radio station personnel. And so there was all of these things going on with radio in Chicago. And then there were television, Soul Train, started by Don Cornelius, who was on WVON. He was covering Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, time in Chicago and, you know, uses that experience with King to really realize that, you know, there's a need to have more positive um, perceptions of young African-Americans on TV. He starts Soul Train. So all of these things are intertwined. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it it was really fun. It was like a full-on experience reading your book and 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 what i mean by that is i was listening to so so much music throughout it was just you know it just you know turn a page listen to another song and two of the acts that i kept turning to and just really really appreciating as i went through is a uh, rotary connection and baby huey and the babysitters and these are two groups influenced by you know the 1960s psychedelia kind of counterculture and i was wondering i was kind of fascinated by that influence and you know it was kind of a little bit unexpected to me. So I was wondering if you can speak on how did um, psychedelia of the 60s infiltrate and uh, inspire Chicago's soul music scene? Well, that was another interesting thing because these were groups that had a profound influence um, later, even though they were not big hit makers Mm -hmm. of the time. And with Rotary Connection, starting with Rotary Connection, their psychedelia, a lot of it came from the ideas of their producer, Charles Stepney, who was certainly not a hippie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But, you know, he brought in all of these sorts of psychedelic effects based on his reading and deep studying of um, avant-garde 20th century composers. And so he would bring in things like, you know, tape manipulation and he also studied the Joseph Schillinger system of composition and this whole abstract composition theory that he brought to the group. The group actually did have genuine hippies in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they, of course, brought their uh, influence from being, you know, playing in uh, rock bands. And um, there's, you know, Sidney Barnes, who was a um, you know, soul singer songwriter who also started to get interested in the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. And I talk in the book about his. 
um, hippie indoctrination, as it will, and what that was all about. And then there was this lead singer, uh, Minnie Ripperton, who had an incredible vocal range, and uh, so she was in the group as well. So you had uh, Judy Hauf, who was an uh, Appalachian uh, singer-songwriter in the group. So you had all these different things going on in the group that turned out as music, but also, too, you know, Chicago was and is a very segregated city. Mm-hmm. And here was a group that was pointing toward a potential integrated future. I mean, all of the counterculture ideals, and I'm talking about the ideals, not necessarily what really happened, but the ideals of all kinds of people coming together and harmonizing, if you will, a group like Rotary Connection you know, truly embodied that. Um, you know, Sly and the Family Stone is sort of like the famous example, but I think Rotary Connection deserves as much credit, as much attention. Um, Baby Huey and the Babysitters, who were a soul rock band and creating this sort of new um, form, new hybrid of the two, and, you know, led by Baby Huey, a singer who, you know, weighed, estimates, but somewhere between 350 and 400 pounds, mm-hmm. who people said could dance like James Brown and you know they too were you know playing in um, in white rock clubs they were playing at hippie festivals they were playing at Catholic high schools as well I mean they were playing all over and mostly African-American band although I also spoke at length to um, Dan Alfano their white bassist and you know what that was like being in the group and unfortunately um, baby Huey who had the drug issue, um, you know, died before the um, album, the one album they did had come out. And um, but it was only later on through sampling and the real hard edge of their music that became such fodder for so many hip hop DJs. And so they became well known later. And the whole history of counterculture in Chicago is, is interesting too. There was a underground newspaper here called The Seed. And I know that uh, Rotary Connection and Baby Huey and the Babysitters played at a festival at the Aragon Ballroom to benefit The Seed. So I went through the Seed archives to see if there was a review of the concert to see what the uh, hippie counterculture reviewers uh, thought of Rotary Connection and Baby Huey and the Babysitters. And um, all I could in the review was the reviewer said yeah man I, I got to the gig late so I was home tripping I missed most of it but who is this Iggy and the Stooges that blew my mind <laughs> what a, wow wow what a, what a what a bill that was going on there yeah no Rotary Connection was so fascinating to me and he kind of just pieced it all together but you know you had Charles Stepney's classical theory and you know the white garage band and the two vocalists that you know you kind of touched on how they were um influenced by trips to Greenwich Village as well. It just, it was just kind of, it's such a, you actually use a term that I really like. It represented colorfully mismatched origins. And so, yeah, psychedelics um, influence on the scene was so, so fascinating. So I uh, kind of close this down a little bit. I have a, uh, a lot of, we have a lot of, um, you know, music lovers who, who tune in. I'm sure we'll tune in for this one. And um, I was curious if you could kind of, point us towards there's so much music in here you know the book acts like a a guide of of what to listen to and what to check out but if you could point us towards um some bands or some acts that you think are you know really you know are slept on in some ways or just something like that deserves more attention or you know you know really worthy of our time 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, again, I'm going to leave off the, the big names sure. who everybody knows, like yep. Curtis Mayfield. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will, as I mentioned earlier, Terry Collier, um, you know, the albums that he made in the early 70s uh, on Cadet, a subsidiary of Chess, were so beautiful. And again, here's Charles Stepney again, and he brought these really beautiful jazz-inspired orchestrations to what Terry Collier was doing with combining folk and soul and jazz. So I recommend the two Terry Collier, um, I recommend all of his albums, but, um, you know, as far as things to start with Terry Collier, I definitely recommend Occasional Rain Mm -hmm. and What Color is Love, his albums on Cadet. Um, People know about the Dells, but I really want to highlight Freedom Means, a really great concept album that they did. And not not coincidentally, Terry Collier and Larry Wade, his partner, wrote many of the songs on it. Another Charles Stepney production of the Dells. Jerry Butler is well known, but he also recorded some very interesting sort of concept albums in the late 60s and early 70s. A lot of people don't know about. So I'd recommend picking up Jerry Butler's um, Spice of Life. But as far as someone who's underrated, um, Jerry Butler's brother, Billy Butler, uh, really great singer, songwriter, guitarist. So I recommend uh, seeking out the Billy Butler and Infinity album, Hung Up On You. Uh, that's a really great record that many people might not know about. So that was Billy Butler. And I'm pretty sure people know about Barbara Acklin, a really great songwriter, singer. Um, and But if Nobody here has Barbara Acklin's Love Makes a Woman album. Pick it up. Uh, she's great. Um, all of uh, Barbara Acklin's uh, Brunswick records should be sought out. But start with that one. Fantastic. I got I got lots of notes right now. Yeah, you even like pointed to some um, kind of towards uh, you know the home stretch of the book that you feel were um, just some artists that you feel were still very unappreciated. There was vocalist um, Marvin Smith, bassist Bernard Reed, and guitarist Larry. Um, blasting gain um, that you were pointing to. Yeah, it was it was it was clear that you really wanted to you know, kind of um, you know celebrate some of these artists that probably aren't getting as much love as they should. And uh, I thought that was great. It was really it felt like a really noble effort in this book, and, and and a lot of heart and love in this book. Well, thank you. That's definitely true, and that was another reason why I wanted to write the book is because so many of these people are are still performing, mm-hmm. and they should be given more. Um, platforms to do so in Chicago and worldwide. But Marvin Smith sounds wonderful. Um, another group, the Notations, a uh, vocal group, they're still performing. In fact, they were the Notations was the last group I saw before the pandemic lockdown. So um, then as well, Larry Wade, who was Terry Collier's partner, is still performing. And there's so many who we should really give a lot of love to while they're here with us and not you know, wait for them to be, you know, legends of the past, but mm-hmm. see them when they're here. So I'm really hoping, hoping for many reasons that this pandemic ends very, very soon. So, you know, some of the, all of these uh, living legends can get more gigs. Jackie Ross, mm-hmm. really great singer. She really, you know, selfish one was her big hit. She's great voice. She's, you know, ready to come back and sing. Mitty Collier, who's a pastor, uh, pastor mm-hmm. Mitty Collier now. And, She's active in her church, active in the gospel community. Um, wonderful voice, wonderful songs, you know, singing religious material that people need to hear. So there are so many of these folks here in Chicago who really deserve, you know, the accolades and now. Yeah. Well, you share uh, 
You sure shined a light on all those artists, which is, you know, it was just amazing reading your book. You know, the more I seem to learn and know about music, it's it's just mind blowing. It's like the less I, I, I realize I know what's out there. Just so it's really such a wonderful, comprehensive work. And, and I learned so, so much. I learned so much here today talking about it. So thank you, Aaron. I really, really appreciate your time and uh, coming on the show here. Well, thank you. I appreciate your show. I appreciate what you do. And it's really a great honor to be here speaking with you. Pretty music, when you hear it, keep on trying to get near it. A little rhythm for your spirit. Oh, but that's what it's for. Come on in, here's the door. And I've seen a sparrow get high and waste his time in the sky. It's easy to fly He's just a little bit freer than I Now here's a mystery And maybe you can help to make it clear to me When you're fast asleep Then what is it that's lighting up the dream? This podcast is in the loop The Legion of Osiris Podcasts Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.